Today, as we turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 34, we are going to come face to face with a section of scripture that shows us the UC. Have you ever heard of the UC? Um, if you've ever been in any leadership position where you bear the responsibility for the decisions and the results, uh, you always need to keep the UC in mind. The UC stands for unintended consequences, uh, and there are always unintended consequences. As we as we finished with Genesis 33 last time, uh, if you're like me, you were left with a lot of questions, weren't you? You know, Jacob was, uh, we saw him changed by God. Uh, he, we saw that he received a new name. We saw real repentance in Jacob's actions, you know, when he finally met his brother Esau. We saw his repentance. Uh, so, I mean, everything was supposed to end on a good note. But if you were with us last time, Genesis 33, you know that, that it didn't end on a good note. Even though, even though we had some real evidence that Jacob had finally been regenerated, he, uh, he also showed us that he's still more than capable of lying and, and even disobeying God. Jacob, he looked Esau right in the face and lied through his teeth about coming to Esau's homeland. And instead of returning to Bethel, which is what he's going to do in the next chapter, uh, by the way, uh, or returning to his father's land, Jacob pitched his tent toward the city of Shechem. Uh, we don't really know why, and, and Genesis doesn't tell us why, but but it's painfully obvious that Jacob felt like living here was you know, just good enough. Uh, he didn't need to go through all the trouble of actually going where God told him. Uh, Jacob was... he seemed like he was only halfway following God's will and commands. I mean, he, he looks at the city and the valley near it, and he says, eh, it's good enough. I mean, what's the big deal? Uh, the big deal is that for Jacob is that he, for some reason, he's become passive. He has become indifferent in his in his uh, faithfulness to faithfulness to God and it didn't take long after that wrestling match with God uh, and this is what chapter 34 is basically about it's going to show us the unintended consequences of Jacob being passive Jacob being indifferent Jacob not chasing after um, after being faithful to God chasing after obedience to God's purposes and his will and we're going to see that, uh, I mean, not uh, not following God's will, being indifferent, um, is going to cost his family. Um, the consequences to his family are just terrible. Um, man, this chapter, this, there's absolutely nothing good about this chapter. This is one of the most heartbreaking and horrifying chapters in the entire Bible. There, there aren't any heroes. No one's commendable at all in this entire chapter. Uh, Jacob's passivity and indifference are, are going to become more and more clear the further we go into the chapter. But right at the beginning, you can see it and, and you can see, of course, the awful consequences because Jacob chose not to go all the way to where God told him, but instead camped near Shechem. His daughter is going to suffer uh, imagine, unimaginably. In verse one and two, we'll just start reading. It says, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Uh, you know, Jacob parked his family right next to the city of Shechem. And uh, the people of the land are uh, the same ones that God repeatedly tells Israel not to intermix with. They're, they're Canaanites. These particular are, are Hivites uh, that live in the city named after this young man, Shechem. Uh, and so what was the first thing that happened? 
Dinah, uh, Jacob's only daughter, goes out from the protection of her father's tents in order to take in the customs and the ways of the land's women, the Canaanite women. Uh, Dinah, uh, seeing the women of the land, implies that she was you know, curious about adopting their customs and practices. It doesn't really seem like it's hard to imagine. I mean, she is the only daughter in the family. You know, If you remember all the kids that Leah and Rachel and the two handmaids had, they were all boys, uh, every single one, except for, except for Dinah. So I can imagine that she wants to you know, interact with the women of, this, of Shechem and, you know, see the clothes that they wear and the customs that they have and all that. Uh, but before we talk about the horrible consequences that happened to her, which, you know, we can't lay the blame on her for it, but we also need to be aware that it seems like Genesis wants to make sure we're aware that, that Dinah is Leah's daughter. Uh, if you saw, saw that in the text in verse one, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, um, uh, we, he wants us to make sure because that tells us two things right off the bat. First, she was the daughter of the wife that Jacob didn't love so much. Remember, uh, he loved Rachel and yeah, Leah's. Yeah, she's OK, whatever. Um, but the second thing is that this makes Dinah, the daughter of Leah and Jacob, a full sister to Levi and Simeon, two of her uh, these are her full brothers. Uh, they were also the children of Leah and and Jacob. And that's going to be important. So just file that away, that she is the full sister of Levi and Simeon, not the half-sister of the other brothers and all that. Um, that's going to be important to us. So Dinah goes out from Jacob's tents, and she runs into this guy, Shechem. Uh, this is, he's the prince of the city that bears, of course, his name. And Shechem rapes her. Uh, literally, the text says that he saw her he took her, he laid with her, and he humbled her. Now, there are some people who argue whether he really raped her or if he just defiled her by having sex with her. Maybe it was consensual. Uh, I think the case is, is pretty strong that he did indeed forcibly lay with her because the same words appear, albeit in a different order, in 2 Samuel thirteen fourteen, describing Amnon's rape of his half-sister Tamar. Uh, but what is incredibly interesting to me was the fact that the the uh, the same words used here that Shechem, Shechem saw her and he took her are also used in Genesis 6 where the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives among them. So this is going to be one of the overriding themes in this chapter uh, because Jacob chose to only halfway obey God and, and because Jacob sits passively for pretty much this whole chapter, uh, the, the very promised line of of God once again falls into jeopardy, uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to see that in a, in a minute. This isn't just uh, some some ordinary situation of a wicked man raping a young girl. This this guy Shechem actually falls in love with her. Uh, throughout this chapter, Shechem is going to be portrayed as this impetuous, lovesick idiot. Uh, now, of course, he's a wicked idiot. There's no there's no justification for what he did. Uh, it was wicked to its core. There's no way to excuse what happened. But the next two verses here are are just really unexpected. Verse three and four says, and his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, uh, get me saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now, here in the ESV, which is what I'm reading from. 
It says that he loved her and he spoke tenderly to her. Uh, There's some question also about how this should be translated. It literally says his soul clung to her and he spoke to her heart. Uh, To speak to the heart is used in passages like Isaiah 40 verse 2 to mean to comfort somebody with your words. Or it's also used in Ruth chapter 2 verse 13 meaning that Boaz spoke kindly to Ruth. So, So Shechem rapes Dinah and he is so taken with her. He, his soul is knitted to her in such a way that he tries to comfort her afterward. Now, okay, I, I don't care who you are. That's just weird. That's just really weird. The whole situation is just strange. Uh, so Shechem tells his dad to get to get this girl for his wife. In that day, it wouldn't be that odd of a request. It was the father's responsibility to arrange the marriage of his son, uh, especially the firstborn son. So Shechem finds this girl he wants and Throughout this whole chapter, notice that no one calls her by her name. The the narrator calls her by her name, but none of the characters in this story call her by name. They say that girl or your sister or your daughter. It's all it's almost like they're negotiating for property. Uh, Shechem tells his dad to go and arrange this marriage, and that's what dads did. You saw that with with uh, Abraham arranged for a servant to be sent to find Isaac a wife, uh, and, and so that was just a common thing. What isn't stated here, and what we will be told later in the chapter, I'm giving all my stuff away at the beginning, I guess, is that throughout all that follows, throughout all these negotiations and the events that happen afterward, Dinah is a captive in Shechem's house. We're not told that right off the bat. We'll see it a little later. Uh, We usually have the picture of, you know, poor Dinah returning home and telling the family what happened to her. But Shechem assaults her and he keeps her. And then he and his dad travel to Jacob's house to negotiate for her hand in marriage. We'll see that more clearly in a minute. First, what I want you to see is we're going to get a close look. We're going to get a close look throughout this chapter, but here it's hinted at at the sinful passivity of, of Jacob. He is not taking the initiative in leading his family. He's not taking the initiative in being the man of God, the promise bearer of God. He sits passively. Verse five and six says, now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And then it says, and Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. We are told how Jacob found out, but he did. And look at his response. The text says that Jacob held his peace until his sons got home. Held his peace. I mean, really? He he didn't do anything. Uh, First of all, if all the brothers were out in the field doing the work, I mean, it was Jacob's responsibility in the first place to make sure that Dinah was safe and protected. And having failed at that, when he hears of the awful things that happen, the text doesn't give any indication that he cared at all. Uh, He did nothing. He said nothing. In this verse, we aren't told why Jacob held his peace. But later in the chapter, it's going to become clear that what Jacob is concerned about uh, and which is really himself. That's all he cares about. So Jacob, the dad who is God's chosen man, holds his peace. And Hamar, the godless ruler, dad of Shechem, he is the one that takes the initiative for his family, for his son, and comes to negotiate with Jacob. So what a, what a situation you see here. I mean, what it's almost like Jacob, he changes from chapter to chapter as we've been walking through Genesis. What, what is wrong with him all of a sudden? 
but let's uh, let's go on in the next verse. It shows us the other players that are in this drama right here. We're we're just inter- being introduced into all the players as, and we're going to see what happens. The sons of Jacob come home, and they're unlike their dad, extremely ticked off. Verse seven says, the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. So this is who we got. We got Dinah and the tragedy that's befallen her, the wickedness that's befallen her. You have Jacob doing absolutely nothing. And then you have the brothers who are completely outraged that such a disgraceful thing has been done to their sister. But through all of this, now that we know the players, I I think the focus of all this and the rest of the chapter is on Jacob. It's because of his passive leadership, not leading in the ways of God, uh, because of his indifference in leading his family, that all this is transpiring. The reason I say that is because in all these verses that we just read, you can cut this off and go back through them and look for yourself if you'd like. Jacob is the focus. In verse three, Dinah is called the daughter of Jacob. Verse five, Jacob, uh, Dinah, Jacob's daughter. Now in verse seven, the brothers are, are not called the brothers of Dinah. They're called the sons of Jacob. So you see, the focus seems to be on the family as as it pertains to Jacob. Jacob is the head of the family. And so far, the text is making sure that this fact, that all this is related to Jacob is front and center in your mind. Now, the negotiations for Dinah are going to begin. Remember, the last thing we read was that Hamar came out uh, to Jacob to negotiate, to uh, try to get Dinah for his son Shechem. And then that's when the brothers came home and they were all ticked off. Verse eight says, but Hamar spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. It's very interesting to me. Hamar comes in and of course he, he wants Dinah to be given to Shechem, right? Okay. Notice that it says Hamar spoke with them, plural, right? The brothers and Jacob himself are there listening to Hamar's proposal. This is, it's, it's going to be important in just a minute, so make sure you make a mental note of that. But Hamar is speaking to them, plural, all, but his statement is pointed toward Jacob as the family's head. Doesn't it say that? He said, Shechem longs for your daughter. This is, this is, you know, it's his first request, the marriage of Dinah to Shechem. But notice that Hamor leaves out. He leaves out anything to do with the crime that's been committed against Dinah. He leaves out that Shechem uh, has wronged Dinah, wronged the family. Uh, he doesn't seem to you know, think it's relevant to mention that Dinah is still at Shechem's house uh, while these negotiations are taking place. Uh, and so uh, we don't know. I mean... He could have thought that, you know, his son was entitled. You know, he's the ruler. He's the prince. And, uh, you know, he's entitled to do something as wicked as that. We don't really know for sure. But that's the first request that Hamor makes is to have Dinah marry Shechem. The second request that he is that he desires that that, uh, all the family of Jacob will intermarry with the people of the city of Shechem. Verse 9 says, make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. 
yourself. Now, this right here should alert you. If you have been reading Genesis with you, with us, uh, the, the careful reader of Genesis is going to be alerted as to what is really going on here. Uh, you should recognize that this temptation, you should recognize it from a mile away. We've seen it several times already in Genesis. The people of God are told not to intermarry with the people of the land. This is the whole reason God flooded the world in Genesis 6, which is why we saw the same language. Shechem saw Dinah and he took Dinah, just like the sons of God saw the daughters of men and he, they took them. This is the reason that, that God told them not to intermarry, that Abraham sent his servant back to Mesopotamia to find Isaac a wife. It's also the reason Jacob was sent to Laban's house to find him a wife. And after all this, after all this has transpired, here we are facing the same old temptation that we've seen over and over again, intermingling with the people of the land. That's the temptation. But Hamar doesn't just make requests of Jacob. He doesn't just say, you know, give us Dinah and marry all our daughters. He has some things to offer Jacob as well. He's going to sweeten the pot. Verse 10 says, you shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Now, that is something that definitely sweetens the pot. Having ownership of the land is what God had promised Jacob in the first place. And here it is. You can have full rights to the land, trade freely in it, purchase property. You don't have to struggle in the land anymore. You don't have to be an enemy of the people of the land anymore. You don't have to continue waiting for what you know you want anyway. Uh, here it is. Just intermarry with us and all your troubles are over. Your family's going to be rich here. Uh, this is what you've been waiting for your whole life. But in order to see it fulfilled, Jacob would have to do what God explicitly told him not to do. And we're going to see how this plays out. And even more uh, to the point, after this uh, proposal is made, this is Hamar's proposal. We're going to see in this chapter that it seems like Hamar is more concerned really about making money and being prosperous than he is about Shechem and Dinah hooking up together. But Shechem pipes up at the end of Hamar's speech and he says, verse 11 and 12, Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, this is Shechem now talking to Jacob and to Dinah's brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me only give me the young woman to be my wife now I mean come on this dude really is in love with Dinah it's so it's so weird he he I mean, he, he didn't even wait for his dad to finish negotiating, didn't wait for Jacob to respond or anything like that. He just adds to the kitty. You know, he says, well, you know, what a deal. You know, as much money as you want. You can have as much money as you want. You ask whatever you want from me and I'll give it. Maybe he feels sorry for what he has done. But it's definitely a fact that he wants Dinah. His soul, uh, like the text says, is, uh, is, is clinging to her, which means he has, you know, fallen in love with her. It could be lust, whatever it is. Uh, he wants her. And so here's the here's the deal. I mean, you just intermarry with us. You're going to have free reign of the land and you can have as much money as you want. Shechem said he'll, he'll give whatever bride price you ask for. Now, if you had to guess which choice Jacob is going to make, what would you say? I mean, at this point, there's there's just really no way to be sure. I mean, Jacob has shown us, he's shown us some very godly behavior. We've seen some. He's shown some great faith. But then again, he's also shown us a tendency to really not be 
obedient at all, but to be half-hearted in his following of God. You know, he's taken the easy route more than once, you know, to get out of the hardships of, of following his God. Uh, if this was the end of the chapter, I mean, I really don't know what Jacob would have done. I think, based on Jacob's response at the end of this chapter, that he probably would have taken the deal. Verse 13 says, the, uh, the, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. So here, here's the thing that should scream at you in that verse. We don't know what Jacob might have done, you know, if he were, if this were the end of the negotiation, but we do know what he did do. And that's absolutely nothing. He continued to hold his peace. Uh, why are the sons of Jacob answering? Why are they negotiating instead of Jacob? We, we've seen in the text that both Hamar and Shechem have, have addressed Jacob directly as well as the brothers. So we know Jacob is standing right there. He's standing right there in the negotiations. Why are the sons of Jacob uh, entering into negotiations with Hamar? Why is the spiritual leader of the family, the man God has chosen to bear the promise, why is he silent? Doesn't he know that it is his passive indifference that started all this in the first place? Why is he continuing to do nothing? We're going to get the answer to that question at the end when Jacob finally does speak. Uh, but right here at the beginning, of the son's counteroffer. They're going to they're going to make a counteroffer to Hamor and Shechem. The first thing that the writer of Genesis, the first thing Moses tells us is that they are plotting something. They're not answering truthfully. They're not even really in, interested in negotiating. We're told that they're going to answer Hamor and Shechem deceitfully. They're setting him up for what's coming next. By saying that they answered him deceitfully, Genesis, the text, makes it clear that there is, there's nothing good about what the sons are about to do. Their speech, their behavior, and the rest of the chapter, it's none of it is condoned in any way by the text of Scripture. They're basically called liars right here. They said that, it says that the sons answered him deceitfully, and this is what they said. Let's read verse 14 through 17. It says, they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition, we will agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. So we know that the brothers are they're just setting Hamar up for something they don't intend to let this deal go through at all the text has already told us that they answered deceitfully but they tell him that they can't intermarry with him because they can only join with those who are circumcised now Remember that circumcision was given as a sign of the covenant in Genesis. So technically, I guess there is a sense in which they are right. Uh, they were told not to intermarry with the people of the land, certainly not to become one people with them. Uh, they can only join with those who are part of the line of the seed that we have seen from the very beginning of Genesis. But there's, there's nothing here said about Israel's God or faith or repentance or following the one true God. There's nothing here about turning from idols and paganism. They simply tell the ruler, Hamar, that if he cuts off the foreskin of all the males in the city, then it'd be okay. So we already see 
that uh, just complying with the sign of the covenant doesn't bring you into the covenant. That's just the sign of the covenant. The covenant with God includes grace by faith. It, it includes relationship with the God of Israel. Uh, they leave all that out. And it, it's going to be clear why here in a minute. They don't intend to introduce this people to their God. They don't desire this people to come into fellowship relationship with this God. They're simply using the sign of God's covenant as a weapon to destroy these people for what they have done. They're going to take their vengeance. Now, people often talk about verses in the Bible that are, I mean, they're just they're just too hard for us to understand. Uh, for me, uh, verse 18 is one of those. It says, their words pleased Hamar and Hamar's son Shechem. <laughs> That's it. Uh, you'll never get me to understand how their counteroffer made, you know, it was pleasing to Hamar and Shechem. Can you imagine that conversation? Well, this is what we want you to do. We want you to uh, let us have your daughter for to marry into our family and, uh, and uh, you know, take our daughters, take our, let us intermarry with you. And they say, okay, well, the one thing you need to do is you need to take, make sure that all the men in your city, all the men, men of your nation, take this knife and, uh, and, and cut off the, cut off the, the foreskin. And they said, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> Can you imagine? You, wait a minute. You want us to cut off what? Uh, are you crazy? I don't care how awesome Dinah is or, or, or how rich Hamor thinks he's going to be if Israel joins him. There's nothing pleasing about getting circumcised as an, as an adult. But evidently, evidently it was worth it to them. Uh, Shechem didn't, I mean, he didn't even leave the premises before he circumcised. I mean, he just lops it off immediately. In verse 19, it says, And the young man, Shechem, did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Uh, I got to tell you, that must be some woman. Uh, Shechem must really be in love with her. Uh, so he does the deal. And then they go back to go back to the city of Shechem. Now, we're not told if he did it himself or if the brothers helped him or if, you know, they had a, you know, a Jewish doctor there that, you know, circumcised them before they left. Jewish doctors are the best ones to circumcise you because they only work for the tips. Uh, but, um, uh, but he goes back to Shechem to tell all the other men what they need to do. And that's what happens. So in verse 19, second part of verse 19, 19b, uh, through 23 it says now he was this is the son Shechem was the most honored of all his father's house so Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city which is where civic matters were you know civic matters took place and where city decisions were made and he spoke to the men of their city saying this is his presentation. These men are at peace with us, talking about Israel. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives. Let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised and they are circumcised, uh, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell 
well with us. So Hamar goes back and he tells the men of the city of Shechem the deal. Israel and their people are going to be allowed to dwell in and trade in the land. They're going to intermarry with the people of the land and then they throw the stipulation on them. Uh, I mean, can you imagine the looks of the men in the crowd that were given each other when they heard that? Uh, but here we also get a glimpse of Hamar's real motivation. Uh, he, he doesn't necessarily care about Dinah. He doesn't necessarily care about his son being happy. He wants to get rich. He wants to get rich and prosperous, more rich and prosperous by sharing in all of Jacob's prosperity. He says, we'll get all their livestock and their property and their beasts. Hamar doesn't seem to care about all the rest of the stuff. He says, you know, let's just do what they've asked. And then here we have another amazing statement of scripture. Verse 24, and all who went out of the gate of this city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem and every male was circumcised all who went out of the gate of the city. Man, they must have been some very persuasive speakers. I have no idea why that deal, I don't care how much livestock we're going to get. I mean, you want me to do what? Uh, How did that convince them? But evidently it did. I mean, how much money would it take for you? Oh, never mind. Uh, You get the idea. And now we see what this has all been about. Now we see where all of this has headed. Uh, The sons of Jacob deceive deceitful ruse. Uh, was was uh, that was planned before is now brought to action. Verse 25 and 26 says, On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, remember the two full brothers of Dinah, uh, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamar and the, his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. So they waited until all the men were good and sore. And then Levi and Simeon, who are those two full brothers, they took swords and killed all the men. They took swords just like Shechem took Dinah. Here is where we see that Dinah is rescued from Shechem's house. She's been there this whole time, but but that isn't all. It says, then the rest of the brothers come in and plunder the city, verse 27 through 29. The sons of Jacob came, this is all the sons of Jacob, came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took, they, notice it says they, plural, had defiled their sister. They spread uh, Shechem's guilt over all the people of the city. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, and their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Now, make sure you understand the magnitude of what the sons of Jacob have done. First of all, they murdered a city, uh, uh, all the men of the city of the city of Shechem. And that's bad enough. Second, they plundered the survivors and the goods of the city. And that's bad enough. They stole all the money, all the wealth, all the livestock, and they enslaved the women and the children. But these men, uh, these men not only deceived and lied to the city, the people of the city to set it all up, but they have now what they did was they used the sign of the covenant. They used the sign of the family of God 
to exact their sinful vengeance on the city. I mean, think about what it must have been like. Levi and Simeon going from house to house, hacking and slashing men as as their families screamed, uh, each man from door to door, going from one house to the next, killing men. Uh, They were no doubt covered in the blood of the men of the city when they finally reached their sister Dinah and, and rescued her. And all of this, all of this, they use the covenant of the holy God to set it all up. They use the sign of the relationship with God as a, as a tool for their sinful, murderous practices. Now, in response to the defiling of their sister, they have defiled the very covenant and the name of God whom they are supposed to serve. They've become really no different than the people of the land. God's law stated that justice would be an eye for an eye. Uh, that's called the lex talionis. It means that when uh, when uh, the the punishment should fit the crime, but they went beyond. They went leaps and bounds beyond the crime. Uh, there, one man... Uh, sinfully and most wickedly raped their sister and so the judgment the punishment they decreed for that crime was that an entire city of men would be murdered and that an entire city of families would be enslaved and that they would take the spoils from the entire city and so you see that you see the the I don't know just the the rampant sin in the hearts of the son of Jacob but The question really, I mean, there's really no, I don't think the text is trying to show us the, uh, the, the perils of, of murder or or sexual assault or, or revenge or all that kind of thing. I mean, of course, those are implied in it. I think the point of the text that we're supposed to ask, the question we're supposed to ask is, where's Jacob? Why has Jacob not said a single word through all of this? What, what does the great spiritual leader of the family have to say? I mean, what would God's man do in this circumstance? Especially seeing that all this really came about because he decided to settle near Shechem rather than go back to Bethel. Well, finally, we're going to get to the answer to that question that we've been asking really since we started this chapter as to why Jacob has been passive, why he has been silent, why he has refused to, uh, to lead his family in the ways of God. The answer is, is really simple. I mean, I know you're expecting some great theological deal, but Jacob only cares about himself. Look at verse 30. It says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, he said, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Now, this this is truly, truly amazing. He isn't concerned about what happened to Dinah. He isn't concerned about what his sons have done or the city full of lives that have been murdered or, or taken. Uh, he, he He's worried about what all the people of the land are going to think of him. He's only concerned with, with, uh, with his reputation. Uh, this has really been the issue the whole time. This is why he didn't lash out when his daughter was raped. Uh, he was trying to be pleasing in the eyes of the Canaanites rather than his God. He settled there in Shechem probably because it looked good to him. He wanted the, the benefit of living there around these Canaanites. He thought he would maybe prosper there. He valued that. He 
he he was worried about his survival. Uh, he said, "You know, if they all gang up against me, they're gonna they're gonna kill me and destroy me." Jacob isn't trusting the promise. He's doing all he can to please the people of the land. He's afraid, and it's his own fault. But even with all of this failure and all this sin, the worst consequence of Jacob's passive nature of what what he has uh, demonstrated to us in this chapter and the end of the previous chapter, his halfway obedience to God is seen in verse 31. Verse 31, the sons answered Jacob what Jacob just said. He says, but they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Now, recognize what, what that means. Jacob has just said, oh, you have, you have done me wrong and they're going to gang up on us and, and how could you endanger our family like this? And the brothers, no doubt, there can be no argument. They've done something unspeakable. There's no excuse for what Shechem did to Dinah. And in the same way, there's no excuse that can justify the horrible sin that the brothers committed. But they feel justified in their actions. They don't fall down and say, Father, we have sinned. We, you know, none of that. Jacob has not led his family in the way of God and demonstrated the spiritual leadership as God's man. And even now, after the deed is done, Jacob doesn't try to get them to understand the sin against God, which they've committed. Because of all this passivity, his sons are so morally bankrupt that they believe what they have done is justifiable. The promise bearers of God, we cannot be passive in our obedience and our our trust in God. It leads to unintended consequences that span so far uh, so far beyond what we can imagine. They spin so far out of control that you you see, I mean, it's almost, this section is almost unfathomable about how this could come to pass. You never in a million years would thought that any of this would have gone, gone on. But this is the consequence of indifference. We often, uh, we often say things like, you know, we're supposed to follow God and since I'm not killing anyone, since I'm not murdering anyone says, I'm not robbing any banks or doing anything like that. Oh, well, I must be following God. But even a half-hearted, lukewarm obedience to the will of God is going to have consequences. God chastises those who are who are his. And in a sense, you see in the overall narrative that God even used this to keep his promise to the people of of God. Remember, the command was don't intermarry, don't intermingle, don't. And Jacob jeopardized that command by settling close to Shechem and becoming involved in, in the city. He, he jeopardized that by not reminding and teaching his children and his family what God requires of them and what it means to follow and to serve God. So, we can't be indifferent and think that a half-hearted obedience is good enough. Even when you come to a place where you think, you know, everything will be fine. It can't hurt. You know, there are always, always, always unintended consequences. For Jacob, the consequences, I mean, they were beyond severe. His daughter was raped. His sons became liars, murderers, raiders. And they were so spiritually starved by his lack of leadership that they, they've absolutely no conviction about what they have just done. The family of God has fallen so far, so fast, and it can all be traced back to the passive attitude of Jacob. 
the lackadaisical, it doesn't matter, it's no big deal attitude of Jacob. The only bright spot in this whole narrative is that Jacob does seem to learn a lesson from all this. And in the next chapter, verse thir- chapter 35, God will again command him to go back to Bethel, and this time Jacob will obey him. Believer, you are, you are called to follow Christ. Promise bearer, you are called to follow Christ. You're called to follow him with all that you have. Comfort and ease are a poor substitute for pleasing God, uh, and they will always bring consequences, even some that you would never see coming. That is what happens to Jacob. He decided that comfort and ease, settling close to the city, would be okay. It's not that big a deal. Okay, let Dinah go on out and check the women of the city out. It's not that big a deal. Let's be quiet when, you know, let's let the sons handle this because I don't want them to think I'm a bad guy. And every passive decision that Jacob made when he refused to lead his family in godliness uh, cost him uh, immeasurably. There's no room for being passive. Leaders, uh, fathers, husbands, there's no room for being passive when it comes to leading your family in following God. There's always consequences. Even if your sons never murder anybody or if your daughter is never raped, just in the just in the reaction of the sons, you can see how you can see how Jacob's lack of leadership caused them to think that, well, since they did wrong to me, it's okay just to wipe them out. They had no conviction from God. They have no, they had no, uh, they had no uh, moral compass at all when it came to this. They hurt me. I'm going to get them back. And all of this is due to Jacob's passive nature as a leader. We are to chase after his righteousness and never, ever settle for anything else. We are to chase to grab our families and with them chase after his righteousness. We are to press toward the goal of the upward call, as Paul says. We are to fight for it every moment of every day.